Welcome to Conversations on Healthcare with Mark Maselli and Margaret Funter, a show where we speak to the top thought leaders in health innovation, health policy, care delivery, and the great minds who are shaping the healthcare of the future. This week, Mark and Margaret speak with Dr. Garth Graham, Director and Global Head of Healthcare and Public Health Partnerships at Google YouTube, where he oversees the creation of credible health content aimed at overriding misinformation circulating on the internet, ensuring that YouTube's 2 billion users per month can trust the medical information they're accessing on the platform. Dr. Graham has long advocated for health equity for all, and serving as Deputy Secretary at HHS and Director of Community Health at CBS Health. Factcheck.org's managing editor, Lori Robertson, joins in, checking misstatements spoken about health policy in the public domain, separating the fake from the facts. And we end with a bright idea that's improving health and well-being in everyday lives. If you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can also hear us by asking Alexa to play the program. Now, stay tuned for our interview with Dr. Garth Grant here on Conversations on Healthcare. We're speaking today with Dr. Garth Graham, Director and Global Head of Healthcare and Public Health Partnership at Google YouTube, overseeing the creation of credible health content in partnership with multiple health institutions. Dr. Graham was the Chief Community Health Officer at CVS Health, and before that, he was President of the Aetna Foundation. He was also the Deputy Assistant Secretary at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services under Presidents Bush and Obama. Dr. Graham, we welcome you back to Conversations on Healthcare today. Thank you. Thank you guys for having me again. Yeah, it was so much was, fun the last time. Yeah, it was great. And Dr. Graham, you know, YouTube is, as you know, spearheading this effort really at a great time uh, when so much misinformation has dominated the narrative about COVID-19 on the internet. And you've been tasked with leveraging the, the massive audience of YouTube. And I always amazed when I hear this number, two billion users per month, uh, uh, really to provide uh, vetted, reliable, uh, science-based information to a, a public that's quite hungry. I, I, needless to say, you know how many clicks there are uh, coming your way every day. Tell us a little bit about who your partners are uh, in this endeavor, and how did you come about uh, taking on this really important task? Yeah, I'll, I'll start with myself first and then uh, back into our partners, which are so much more important. So, you know, I have just always been, um, like you and many of the folks on, 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 your, on your show, um, I've always been obsessed with this issue of community health mm -hmm. and impact and being where people are and, um, you know, being kind of doing the thing that could impact the most people um, and bring the most positive, certainly positive health impact and that positive impact overall. So for me, um, part of this, um, what drew me to this role was, again, the impact, the, the amount of folks who visit the platform looking for health information um, and, you know, the ability to make a difference in so many people's lives across the world. So I think for me, it was this um, ongoing, I would think, uh, think magnetism or attraction um, to this idea of community health impact and reaching people where they are. Now, I think, quite frankly, I don't, I'm, I don't, I'm not the owner of that idea because certainly I think a lot of our partners um, feel the same way. And I think that's why they've, they've signed on to work with us. So, you know, the American Public Health Association, um, given their own necessary public health domestically, you know, National Health Service, CDC, you know, all of the different folks that have been working with over the past year to bring health information to scale, um, I think share that similar viewpoint. 
Well, Dr. Graham, uh, two billion people. Wow, that's that's a lot of people, um, and it is a uh, reality for anybody uh, who's in healthcare today, sort of on the delivery side, that we know that before patients come and talk to us, they've probably already talked to Dr. Google about whatever the concern, the symptom, or the medical condition is. But with with COVID. Uh, there's just been so much uh, misinformation for people to sort through. And of course, a lot of new information and because it's new, sometimes changing. How are you formatting uh, the YouTube COVID content to leverage the uh, internet's influencers to get the message across sure. that we're trying to get across to billions of people and really all around the world? We tend to think of this as, uh, I tend to think of it as national, but this is really a worldwide oh, yeah, phenomenon that you're trying to influence. Yeah. you know. Um, what I like to think of is, you know, gone are the days in public health where people are looking for information from a flyer or, you know, looking to learn about health and public health from a billboard. They're looking for it in the palm of their hands. You know, the people ask questions. If they wake up at 2 a.m. in the morning worried about something. They're not going to, they're going to look it up and they're going to try to find a source of information that um, hopefully is factual. So the, our goal was to marry the evidence base and the science with the engagement. So realizing that um, there are a lot of uh, places where, on, particularly on YouTube, where people go to for information about other things. And so what if we could provide evidence-based information um, to folks when they're looking for questions? You know, who would have thought, um, guys, that messenger RNA um, is going to be a topic, you know, at the dinner table? A hundred percent. Yeah, and you know, the, the ability of video um, to kind of take complicated um, piece of information and make it digestible in this um, way where you, you utilize the influence of the audiences that people have um, to bring engaging information is, is, I think, part of, again, what attracted me, but also part of a lot of what we've been doing during COVID. So I think my goal, I think our team's goal is to really bring the science, you know, out of um, ivory towers and into people's um, palms and into their conversations and, and really just kind of revolutionize the way science gets to the public. Oh, that's great. Yeah. You know, Dr. Graham, uh, close to 70% of the population has had at least one dose of the COVID vaccine in this country, but the anti-vaccination movement is formidable force. You know, Margaret, I, I don't remember if it was Dr. Ashish Jha or Dr. Peter Hotez who said, us, said to us, the biggest battle we have right now, the biggest fight that we have in our country is the internet. And uh, that was telling because these are science people who are at this point worried about the, the vaccine and the distribution. And YouTube has been a hotspot for such activity in the past. And we've seen such a dramatic rise in vaccine resistance as the COVID vaccine is now rolling out all across the United States. Uh, talk to us about your strategy for countering some of that messaging. Yeah, you know, the, 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 um, the, the important thing here is to get science to the public at scale. So what we've done um, is we've worked with, um, uh, we, we actually just did something with um, uh, President Biden and Dr. Fauci and um, some YouTube creators as an example. We've been doing this with Dr. Fauci from actually last, um, last year, since the beginning of the pandemic. Um, where we try to bring information to people at scale from science-based um, um, uh, 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 viewpoint, but using the audiences. One of the things we did earlier on was with um, um, Dr. Fauci and Trevor Noah um, and really broke down a lot of the very important information, a basic piece of information people needed to know about COVID at a time. But going back to your original question, the whole idea here is to plant um, and have information on the platform 
that is credible scientific and evidence-based. Now, you know, it's interesting when you had mentioned um, um, one of the earlier comments from one of our distinguished scientists about the challenges with information on the internet. That's, the, that, that's where I see the opportunity. Because the truth of the matter is, why there's a challenge is because that's where people are. Yeah. And so we need to go where people are. We need to be where the community is, be where individuals are with the information. And I often think, last point I'll make on this is, you know, I often think about this issue of misinformation like a garden. Um, we have to pull out the weeds um, and pull out the misinformation, but then um, you need to plant, you need to plant with proactive information um, that people will gravitate to. And really we've been very active on the misinformation front, moving over 800,000 pieces of content that have violated um, COVID-19 policies or, or anything that is not synchronous with the science. Um, um, I may lead people down the wrong path. So, so I agree with, um, with um, uh, much of what folks are concerned about part of why I'm in this role is to really help us tackle that issue and make sure we can get information to scale uh, to the public. Well, Dr. Graham, uh, health disparities, health inequities uh, were very real long before the COVID pandemic, uh, but certainly the entire country, I think, has, uh, has, has realized this at a level maybe we never did before about the gaps in life expectancy, um, how much harder uh, groups were hit, how much people's uh, economics plus race and ethnicity uh, factored into whether they were likely to get infected and if they were, uh, how sick they were going to get. You have been concerned with this your entire career as long as uh, we've known you for many years now uh, at HHS, at the Aetna Foundation and CVS Health. You are very focused on health inequity and the social determinants of health. How are you using your new role in this incredibly powerful platform uh, to address health disparities, health inequity, uh, to really engage populations that most need uh, this information? You've got this incredibly powerful tool as powerful as your tool, tools were before, maybe this is the most powerful one yet. How, how are you putting this in service of those yeah, goals that you have? I, thank you for saying that. You know, you're right. I have been, um, I've had the issue of health inequities as a part of the reason that gets me up in the morning, that kind of drives and has driven my career and day-to-day -day decision. So think about this. Think about the ability of platforms like YouTube to empower um, folks from underserved communities with information. Now, there are issues that um, we have to deal with, continue to deal with their own social determinants of health, structural racism, but I view the power of the platform is reaching communities with engaging information that allows them to make the right decisions for their uh, communities. And in fact, during COVID, our, some of our primary partners were um, uh, folks who were tackling health disparities with the pandemic, with the Kaiser Family Foundation, um, um, as well as folks like the, um, the, the, the Black Coalition Against COVID um, and other similar groups were some of our first partners in working together. And it's because, um, like you said, you know, this issue of health disparities is real, has been real for a long time, but has certainly um, COVID, I think, unearthed some visibility on that. So, so working with the partners um, to reach Black and Brown communities is particularly important. And also educating the community, the broader community, about the challenges within Black and Brown communities is a big part of our agenda um, and how our work will continue moving forward. We're speaking today with Dr. Garth Graham, Director and Global Head of Healthcare and Public Health Partnership at YouTube. Uh, Dr. Graham, I was thinking as you were talking about the garden, uh, prior to COVID-19, we had sort of only one variety of, of plant in there, uh, which was uh, in-person visits, right? We only had one thing in the garden. And uh, obviously with uh, COVID-19 coming along, 
uh, we've had this dramatic shift to uh, and adoption of telehealth. And I think about uh, the population we care for, uh, 90, 95% of them live at or near poverty. The ability to simply use your phone, you didn't necessarily have to have a smartphone, you could do telephonic, was so important, so transformational. And now we're getting to this point where there's a COVID 2.0 delivery model using telehealth and other things. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are on it. You've been a, in the forefront of so many transitions and transformations in healthcare, but how does YouTube's content help better communicate to patients online? And what, what might that system look like as you look down the future? Oh yeah, that's a big part of what we're thinking about now. So thank you for asking that. So if you think about it, what telemedicine really is, again, is this idea of reaching patients where they are. You don't have to get up and put on your, you know, your clothes and your shoes and socks and go to the doctor. Your doctor is coming to you um, in your own home. And, it's, and that, that telemedicine is a gift that we should have been unwrapping a long time ago. So thank you, COVID, for allowing <laughs> us to move faster. But as you know, Crazy. it's been moving way too slowly for a long time. So that's a good thing. So um, we see our platform as a complement to that. This idea of, of getting information. So, you know, if we if, if the if if the clinical visit is over and there's other things that patients need to read about, um, uh, uh, watch, you know, understand, um, listen to, you know, that's where they go to places um, like Google and YouTube to get information. And we what we want there is to have scientific information that complements um, much in terms of what they would have, have had in that clinical encounter. Similar to how, you know, in the old days, I say the old days, like last year was the old days, but <laughs> you know, when people go to in-person visits, when they when they are out of the visit, you know, there are other things that are, um, in fact, impacting how they make that decision. And so on the, in the digital realm, this is where you see platforms like ours and others, you know, be able to supplement that information, making sure that, again, it is evidence-based, credible information um, that is, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, that engaging we are presenting the science. So really all of these tools are complementary. Um, and certainly, as you just pointed out, COVID has accelerated that. But um, I don't think we'll be able to go back because now patients and individuals and consumers know what it's like um, and they know that we can do it. So I think um, we'll have to continue to evolve to meet people where they are. Okay. Well, Dr. Graham, uh, sort of, uh, I think, continuing somewhat along that theme, uh, all all signs, all data points to a real escalation in behavioral health issues, mental health issues uh, across the uh, across the lifespan, but particularly in our teenagers and and our younger yeah. children as well. Everyone's very concerned about this. You were joined by experts from Harvard School of Public Health recently uh, with some influencers and some teens. Uh, I think we still call them digital natives, although I think that's getting to be kind of an old-fashioned term already. They've they've been accessing. Uh, the internet since pretty much they were old enough to point a finger. They're uh, pretty comfortable, it seems, sharing their feelings online and getting help through telehealth. I know you've been studying this issue. What what other solutions do you think telehealth might have to offer as we confront really a gap between not just getting teens to use telehealth, which I think is the easier lift, but just uh, the enormous perhaps gap between the demand and the supply available to meet it? Yeah, no, it's a very good question. You know, right now, as you just pointed out, across all populations, we are seeing um, uh, increases in incidents of depression, anxiety, certain substance abuse, all of those things that um, I think are the sequel of the pandemic. You've seen that across the world. So, you know, right now, what we have to think about is as people, where, where are folks? You know, again, 
you know, how do we reach them with information? How do we get, um, we, how do we link them to resources? How do we link them to, you know, the kinds of things that are coming out from SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Service Administration, the kind of things that are coming out of community groups who have created resources um, that are viable and impactful um, in general. So a big part of, of, as you just mentioned, what we've been working on is this idea of connecting people to resources and also um, ways in which um, for um, you know, the less serious um, end of the clinical spectrum, how can we educate people on coping techniques um, and the kinds of things that um, help improve their daily life. But you know, once you get past a certain level of, of, of challenges, you know, how to connect people, ref- um, uh, have them um, understand where to go and seek for more serious care. But you are so right. You know, when you look at some of the search criteria that we've been seeing a spikes on over the last couple of uh, months. Um, it is just um, emblematic of the fact that um, this pandemic left a lot of folks um, socially and emotionally burdened. Um, and digging our way out of this is going to take us a long time. But we have to you know, be there for people where they're at to be able to help them on this journey. You know, you started this conversation off talking about one of the reasons you took the job was really giving you this incredible platform. Uh, I noted that you were at a Harvard event recently, a look back, a way forward with Dr. Fauci and Karen DeSalvo, who you work with at Google Health uh, and Harvard's Michelle Williams. Talk to us about the engagement though with the user. How does a user play a role in making the internet better or making YouTube better? What's that engagement look like? Because that seems to be past the, the, the folks that we all look up to. It's really about us as a community working together. Yeah, you know, um, I love the way you asked that question. We are used to healthcare being very system centric. Mm-hmm. So we think of the healthcare system and how we get care to the person. We rarely, um, you know, there's been a lot of talk about patient-centered care. We haven't done a good job of doing that um, as, a, as a national healthcare community. And that's where you think, and the funny thing about um, when you, the tech industry and the way in which um, a lot of the technology products are made is they're very user centric. So, you know, you start to look at this from a totally different lens where you start with the person's journey and how they're going to interact with the system. And then how does the system change and maneuver? How does a platform deliver information? How are things um, created? from a patient-centric, user-centric standpoint. You know, if there's one thing, I'm so glad you asked the question, there's one thing I hope that these conversations inspire is this idea of switching the paradigm from not how we as a system deliver care, but thinking about people as they receive information, as they receive care. So a big part of of our work um, starts with the individual um, sitting and looking and searching and thinking through their journey. And I think for us, um, um, and for me personally, kind of having um, this healthcare experience and now understanding, you know, how we utilize these tools better, I really do think that um, now is time for um, uh, healthcare as an industry to evolve to truly patient-centric care. Well, I really appreciate that note of optimism mm-hmm. and forward progress. We're speaking today with Dr. Garth Graham, Director and the Global Head of Healthcare and Public Health Partnerships at Google YouTube. You can follow his work by going to blog.youtube.news COVID-19 education. Dr. Graham, we thank you for your commitment to advancing public health, for sharing your vision for how technology platforms can enhance the goals of public health, and for joining us on Conversations on Healthcare. Thanks so much. Thank you.
Conversations on Healthcare. We want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of factcheck.org, a nonpartisan nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Randomized controlled trials, the highest standard of evidence, have found that hydroxychloroquine isn't beneficial in treating hospitalized COVID-19 patients. Yet social media posts are claiming the drug works and conservative outlets have touted an unpublished and much criticized observational study as evidence of the drug's effectiveness. A randomized controlled trial is considered the gold standard in evaluating whether treatments are effective because it reduces bias by randomly assigning participants to treatment or standard care groups. Participants can be blinded, meaning they won't know to which group they're assigned, and researchers can also be blinded. They can more confidently evaluate whether a treatment led to different effects. Data from such a trial, among other evidence, led the Food and Drug Administration in June 2020 to revoke an emergency use authorization it had issued three months earlier, giving some patients easier access to hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine if they couldn't participate in a clinical trial. The anti-malarial drugs, also used to treat lupus and rheumatoid arthritis, were pushed by then-President Donald Trump as early as March 2020 for treatment for COVID-19. Despite the lack of scientific support for the drug, Trump said in a June statement that he was right about several things, including, quote, hydroxychloroquine works. Social media posts have made similar claims about the drug. But no new randomized controlled trials have emerged to show hydroxychloroquine works as a treatment for COVID-19. Conservative outlets have recently publicized an observational study that hasn't been peer-reviewed as having confirmed the drug's effectiveness. But experts who have studied the drug told us the paper has several flaws, particularly with the way the statistical analysis was done. And again, they point to the stronger evidence from randomized controlled trials. One meta-analysis published by the journal BMJ provides a look at the combined findings of such trials of several drug treatments for COVID-19. It continues to be updated when new findings emerge. That meta-analysis concluded that hydroxychloroquine and some other drugs, including the antibiotic azithromycin, quote, do not appear to reduce risk of death or have an effect on any other patient important outcome. The only FDA-approved treatment for COVID-19 is the antiviral drug remdesivir, which the FDA approved for COVID-19 patients 12 years of age and older, requiring hospitalization. As of late June, 11 drugs and biological products have emergency use authorization from the FDA for COVID-19. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. 
Charles Slaughter learned the value of entrepreneurship from an early age, first as a paper boy growing up in Connecticut, then with a bicycle repair business he started at Yale. Later, he took the passion globally as a field organizer for a microfinance company, Trickle-Up. Then came his first successful venture, Travelsmith, a $100 million online clothing supply company for serious global travelers. But his travels also showed him another stark reality, the number of children dying in third world countries from treatable diseases due to lack of access to basic medicine. On average, in the countries we work, somewhere between 50 and 100 out of 1,000 kids will fail to reach their fifth birth. There's only three or four sort of major causes of this. Diarrheal disease, malaria, and pneumonia. What is shocking is that all of those things can be addressed at extremely low cost. But the barrier is effectively delivering what we know works. He wondered how he could put the power of healing in the hands of villagers themselves. And he realized a successful model already existed. The challenge is how can we reinvigorate this idea of door-to-door healthcare, make it both more impactful and financially viable in places where financial resources are extremely limited. I'm thinking about that and I go, wait a minute, hold the phone. Isn't there a business model that excels at that? And you start to think about Amway and Avon and Tupperware. Further research, I actually went out and enrolled as an Avon lady <laughs> um, and learned, tried to learn it from the inside. After training as an Avon lady himself, he founded Living Goods, a company that sells not makeup, but life-saving essentials like drugs to treat malaria and diarrhea and solar light. In a sense, what Living Goods does is quite simple. We recruit, train, and support networks of community health promoters who go door to door every day teaching families how to improve their health and wealth and then making a living by selling high impact health products like simple treatments for malaria and diarrhea, healthy fortified foods, uh, high efficiency cook stoves, solar lights and water filters. Sales associates go from home to home in their villages not just selling the goods, but teaching the families in the entire community how to use these life-saving essentials. Every agent works as an entrepreneur under the Living Goods brand. We typically partner very closely with the local government. So where we operate, we are the government's community health army. And now, perhaps most importantly, they get a smartphone. And that smartphone has a Living Goods designed application on it that can help them with a guided diagnosis of childhood diseases that enables them to register and support pregnant women and reminds them to follow up with those customers. There are now Living Good Sale Associates serving the needs of some 5 million residents through sub-Saharan Africa, and the results are quite impressive. In some cases, infant and child mortality is down 25% in the communities being served. I think within 10 years' time, it's possible that every community who needs a community health worker can have one to make sure that that kid doesn't die of malaria or pneumonia or something else ridiculously simple that they need in time. Living Goods, a simple grassroots business model facilitating the distribution of low-cost, life-saving materials to families living in low-resource areas. Most of the health centers are very far. And these mothers, these fathers do not have access to these health centers. But with the living goods, we are always there for them. Anytime they come across you, you are ready, you have the medication, you give the treatment. Generating income while saving lives 
and improving the health of communities as well. Now that's a bright idea. You've been listening to Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare is recorded at WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at chcradio.com, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We love hearing from you. The show is brought to you by the Community Health Center. COVID-19 is impacting the world and changing the face of healthcare. Conversations on Healthcare with Mark Maselli and Margaret Flinter welcomes the greatest minds in health policy, technology, and innovation from Dr. Anthony Fauci. There are going to be more than one vaccine that's going to be approved by the FDA. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy. If we really want to get treatment right, we've got to integrate it with primary care. We're bringing these experts straight to you Saturday and Sunday mornings at 8.30 on the Federal News Network. Conversations on Healthcare is a production of Community Health Center, Inc.